Thank you, Emma. Um, folks, if you have that passage open before you, Genesis 35, um, we will stick mostly to uh, the material in that chapter today. This morning we come to the end of this series in the life of Jacob, and the story ends a little bit like some of the very best stories, and, and that is this particular story ends with a homecoming. Jacob if you remember, has spent most of his life so far, uh, at least 20 years, uh, away from his home, 500 miles north in uh, a place called Padamaram with his uh, uncle Laban. But God's called him home. And the last couple of weeks we've been journeying with him, the last couple of times we've been in the Jacob narrative, uh, we saw him dramatically reunited with his brother in chapter 33, And we saw last week as well how his family made an ill-advised stop-off at a place called Shechem in chapter 34. But today he's going to make it home. Uh, He's going to go via Bethel uh, to his father in Hebron. It's not the very last time we'll hear about Jacob, but he is, uh, you know, he'll have a few cameos later on in Genesis But by the time we get to the end of this chapter 35, he's pretty much being written out of the plot, uh, is how they'd describe it if it was a a soap opera. He'll make way for his his sons who come after him, and particularly one of his sons, Joseph, uh, will take center stage. But before he leaves the stage, Jacob, there's some unfinished business here. And there's a small matter, I think, of of assessing his life. What, what, What happened here? Um, these past nine uh, times that we have come to this part of God's word, what's happened in this life of Jacob that we've been studying together? Well, let me suggest right before we dive into this morning's passage that the Jacob story has a good ending. Uh, And I want you to notice the final verses of the chapter that we, we didn't read them, verses 27 to 29. We're told that Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abram and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. There's not a whole lot of elaboration there, but it's quite a big scene if you bear in mind everything that's gone before. Isaac, remember, is the father who had never managed to affirm his son Jacob when he was a young boy and a young man under his care. Isaac had only given Jacob a blessing because he'd had the wool pulled over his eyes. And maybe for the first time in his life, in his old and dying years, Isaac sees Jacob as a son worthy of his blessing we don't know we're not told very much but it seems to me like a good ending because Jacob is home back with his dad Um, I'm imagining that whenever he heard uh, that Isaac was dying that Esau makes the journey to Hebron too and what you have is these two reconciled sons side by side at their father's deathbed Together they're giving thanks to God for for their father's life. 
and they're encouraging each other in their grief. The narrator doesn't elaborate on any of that, but I have to say I feel like I recognize this scene, and maybe, maybe some of you do somewhat as well. A little over a year ago, we gathered around my father's deathbed, a family of us, my brothers and sisters and I. And although it was a, a time of great sadness, I remember coming away from that, that period of our lives very grateful to God that we had been able to be there with Dad in the last and that we were reconciled, that we were brothers and sisters who were together. We don't like these kind of endings in our lives, but as far as endings go, this was a, a very good one, I think, for Isaac and, and also for Jacob. We're going to try and spend a few moments today getting a handle on the whole of Jacob's life. What have we learned from this part of God's word that better equips us to, to follow Jesus, to be his disciples in the here and now? Let me suggest that the two biggest things going on in the life of Jacob are these. Jacob's transformation and God's grace. There are signs of both of those again here in chapter 35 in this final uh, narrative, a, a chapter of the Jacob narrative. For the sign of the transformation, just look at the, the first verses. Very simply, we find Jacob obeying God. Verse 1, God says, go up to Bethel settle there, build an altar there to God. And if you let your eye then run down to verse 6, you'll see that Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar. God says, go to Bethel and build an altar. Jacob goes to Bethel and builds an altar. Jacob's obeying God. Jacob's been in Bethel before, if, if you remember, right back near the start of our story. And there's a real contrast with this visit, visit to Bethel and his previous one. Then he was a fugitive. He was running as hard as he could to get away from home, to get away from the, the life that he needed to escape from. But now he's journeying home wanting to reintegrate back into his family and his life. Then, if you remember, he wasn't looking for God. God had to interrupt him with a, a dream and, and appear to him in that way. Now we see Jacob as a, a man who's constantly hearing from God and meeting with God. Somebody who's open to God's guidance and his transformation. I think there's an even clearer indication of his transformation in between that verse 1 and, and verse 6. If you look at verse 2, Jacob's been commanded to go to Bethel and he says, yeah, I will, but before I go, there's something I need to do. So he says to his family, get rid of the foreign gods you have, purify yourselves and change your clothes. And we read in verse 4 that the people did give him their foreign gods. They give him their good luck charm earrings and he buries all the stuff together under a tree near Shechem. This is quite weird, isn't it? You know, God first appeared to Jacob 20 years ago at Bethel and yet there are foreign gods in his house or in his household. Why is that? 
Are there some members of the household who haven't quite got it yet? Or is Jacob leading his household in such a way that he leaves room for God plus some other Middle Eastern deities you're interested in? We're not too sure. But in either case, his response at this point is exemplary. Jacob knows he's been invited to come and to worship God, and he knows that you can't properly worship God while you've got other gods. You can't cling with two hands to the living God while your hands are full of other stuff that's still important to you. So he's quick and he's decisive and he disposes of the gods. Not for the first time in this Genesis narrative, we see the narrator making fun of the, the foreign gods. I don't know if you, you're beginning to, to see this pattern. Sam helped us with it in 30, chapter 31 a few weeks ago. If you remember then, the, the gods were Laban's household gods. And in that instance, Laban was complaining, Jacob, you've stolen my household gods. Think about it for a second. What kind of a god can you steal? <laughs> or... Um, Rachel, she, she took them and she packed them in, in a saddlebag or whatever and sat on them. What kind of gods can you use for a cushion? It's laughable. These aren't proper or real gods. And here in chapter 35, what kind of gods can you gather up and bury like landfill in a wee hole in the ground? In contrast to the true and the living God of Israel, Laban's false gods are laughable. Folks, just one last time. We, we would do well to remember that today. That all other things that, that vie for our affections, that seem so important to us, they're trivial and they're laughable. Wealth, status, comfort, they're nothing. They're fit only for the bin. And the sooner we take the step that Jacob did, lift them decisively and put them there, the better. So this Jacob story, and evidenced again here in chapter 35, is a story of his transformation. But it's ultimately a story of much more than that. Jacob's transformation takes place in the context of God's staggering grace. Notice God's grace to Jacob here in chapter 35. Look at what he says to him at Bethel, verse 11. God comes to Jacob and he says, I'm God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. I have to say, I never really noticed that in this passage before. Have we heard those words before somewhere? Be fruitful and increase in number? Yeah, we have. God spoke them to Adam and Eve just after he'd created them, right at the outset of all things. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Do you see what God's doing here? He's saying, Jacob, come on right back to the beginning. Let's reconnect you to the big story. To what my intentions have always been for human beings to flourish under my loving rule 
And then he goes on. He says that you'll become a nation and a community of nations. They'll come from you. Jacob, remember that promise I made to to your grandfather Abram, the one that your father Isaac told you about? Well, I'm keeping it. I don't forget my promises. I don't ever leave them behind. And I'm passing them on to you. And then in verse 12, God confirms to Jacob he's safely home. He says, the land I give to Abram and Isaac, I also give to you. And I'll give this land to your descendants after you. Jacob, I haven't changed my plans one bit. Haven't reneged on a single promise. And then again, something I'd never really noticed here. God elaborates on the previous promises. He says in verse 11, kings will come from your body. Jacob, you're going to be the father of a royal line. And of course, if you know this story of Jacob's family, you'll know that there were kings in this line. But you'll also know that the greatest of these kings wouldn't be born for many centuries yet. Just up the road from Bethel in the small village of Bethlehem. Jacob, there have been ups and downs with your family. Abram, your grandfather, wasn't perfect. That's not why I chose him. Your father Isaac had many and deep flaws. That's not why I chose him either. You and your father, you've been far from perfect, but none of that changes my commitment to you. This story began, God says, with an act of grace. And that's the way it always continues. So God graciously renews his promises to Jacob. But it's much more personal than that, God's grace in this chapter in Jacob's life. God's grace goes much, much deeper because Jacob himself is renewed. Look at verse 10. God comes to Jacob and he reminds him of what he had said to him before on his journey by the Jabbok River when the two had wrestled together. He reminds Jacob of how he had changed his name and how that was supposed to reflect a change in his life. Your name is Jacob, but you'll no longer be called Jacob. Your name is Israel. Look at what God does here. He confronts Jacob with the truth about himself. He says, your name is Jacob. And we all know what that means. You're crooked. You've lived a crooked life. Twice you've cheated your brother Esau out of what was coming to him. At least once you took advantage of your your father's blindness and took him for a ride. Eventually you outdid your double-crossing father-in-law Laban and you took away most of his livestock. Later on when Laban was looking the other way, you sneaked off with his daughters, just about everything else in that household that wasn't nailed down including his household gods. Your name is Jacob. And we all know what that means. 
but I'm not going to call you Jacob anymore. I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to call you Israel. Because you've come to realize that all the blessing that you've cheated for and struggled for all your life is in me. You've begged me for it. You've struggled with me for it. You've defeated me with your persistence. And I give myself to you. You're Israel. The one who struggled with the living God and won his blessing. It's incredible. God shows so much grace to a guy who so little deserves it. His name was Jacob. His name revealed a fundamental aspect of his character. Jacob, whose name meant crooked, turned out to be a crook. Whenever you heard that Jacob was in the room, you you reached for your pocket to check that your wallet was still there. When Jacob heard his name spoken, he thought of all, all that defined him in his life. I'm Jacob. I'm a con artist. Nobody trusts me. I should be wary of trusting myself. That's who I am. That's my identity. Tell me this. What's your name? What do you think people think of when they hear your name spoken? What's the first thing that springs to your mind when somebody calls your name and you unexpectedly hear it? Is there a sin that's synonymous with your name? Is there some part of your character or your personality that's, that's so fundamental that it defines you, at least in your own mind? Maybe you're like Jacob. Maybe you're a crook. Maybe you know about cheating or dishonesty in your life that nobody else knows about. Maybe you're selfish to the core. You look at life only to see how it can be lived on your terms, how you can get what you need for your advantage. Or maybe you're proud. Maybe when you're in public, when you're in a gathering like this, you have a sense of all the ways in which you're superior to the people around you. What's the sin that defines you? If Jacob's a crook, what's what's your name? Folks, the incredible news of the gospel is that the God who saves us gives us a new name. He wants to rename us. The prophet Isaiah talked about this in chapter 62 of his prophecy. He tells God's people, the nations will see your righteousness 
and all the kings your glory, you'll be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow you. Folks, the truth is that if a guy as utterly corrupt as Jacob can know God's grace and can find his transformation, then so can we, any one of us. If you're still sitting thinking, yeah, it's okay for other people here, but not for me, I'm saying today it is for you. He can give you a new name. He can give you a new identity, make you a brand new person. There's no longer any aspect of our personalities or our characters that are beyond God's transforming power. It's brilliant. This is the gospel. This is what God wants to do for us. Friends, as I try to get a handle on the Jacob story, try to see what what the takeaway learning might be, what I've taken away is that God didn't treat this crook as he deserved. Instead, he lavished grace after grace after grace on him. And as he did so, he taught Jacob a lesson. This dyed-in-the-world, double-barreled con artist, he taught him a lesson that there are a few things in life that you can't get but can only be given. And it turns out they're the important things. The grace and the love of God. A new name. Jacob didn't and wouldn't ever deserve God's love. But God gave it anyway. When we remember Jacob, let's remember God's staggering grace. Let me pray. Lord, this Jacob story has frustrated us. We have been irritated and annoyed by how broken and fallen and twisted and crooked he is. We always hoped that he'd turn out better or perfect by the time the story ended. Lord, we love it when we see you working in the lives of people who are good because we like to think of ourselves in those terms. Lord, help us instead today to see in your word the much greater good news of the gospel. That Jacob wasn't good. That he was categorically broken and flawed and sinful. That he was a whole lot like us. And yet, you came to him. Yet, you drew him into the great story of salvation 
You made him one of the fathers of your people. And you gave him a new name. You made him new. Father God, help us to be like Jacob in this regard, that we hunger for you, that we long and cling on to you, wanting your blessing more than anything in the world. And Lord, help us too to live lives amazed at your grace. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.